it's really easy to look at the big picture and despair. But if I look at individual sub-watersheds where we're working and I see the transformation that's taking place there, I see lives changing for the better. That gives me a lot of hope. So in faith, I think the little that we have to offer, we're trusting God to utilize that to do something far greater. So I have hope as long as I focus on where I can make a difference. I think that we focus on the problem and its global totality. That's a recipe for despair. Welcome to the Earth Keepers Podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the Earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that Earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual lives. In this episode, I'll be talking with Scott Sabin, Executive Director of the organization called Plant with Purpose. Plant with Purpose is an international, faith-based organization that empowers the poor in rural areas around the world where poverty is connected to deforestation. Importantly, their approach to community development includes not just the planting of food-producing trees on farms, but also the work of reforestation and species diversification in publicly shared land. As you heard at the start of the program, Scott explains that the tens of millions of trees the organization has helped to plant over the years can seem insignificant when one looks at the enormity of the deforestation problem across the globe. However, the crucial factor for all of us is to focus on the part each of us can play and trust God for the rest. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers podcast. Well, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Wondering if you could start us off by telling us a bit about the work of Plant With Purpose. Sure. Plant With Purpose works around the world in places where extreme poverty and environmental degradation, specifically deforestation, intersect. And that's actually a common problem around the world, especially in the tropics. I think a lot of times U.S. audiences are familiar with that phenomenon in Haiti, perhaps, where Famously, most of the forests have been cut and still a large percentage of the population makes their living trying to farm the degraded, badly eroded hillsides. But that's not unique to Haiti. Hundreds of millions, if not billions of people make their living as smallholder farmers and they're some of the poorest people in the world. And that's who we work to serve by addressing their economic needs environmental issues, and responding with our Christian outreach and spiritual needs as well. And how many countries are you in these days? We're currently working in nine, and all of those are long-term partnerships. I mean, when I say long-term, we've been partnering with our Dominican partner for almost 40 years, and so those are very close relationships with indigenous teams that we know and have worked with for a long time. Well, that's sort of one of the hallmarks of Plant With Purpose's approach, this idea that 
the folks on the ground in the context, you know, have knowledge and wisdom that people from outside the context don't have, right? And so you apparently, as an organization, are keen on raising people up into leadership as soon as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of obvious, but but we don't often think about it. People used to ask me, so are you going to teach the locals how to farm, which is laughable on so many levels. I did work on a farm in Oregon one summer. I was actually fired from that job, the one job I've ever been fired from. So even in a U.S. context, my practical knowledge of farming is very small. But, you know, then you'd go and you talk to Dominicans or Tanzanians who've been farming for generations. There's a lot we can do to catalyze what they're doing to incorporate indigenous knowledge to kind of uh, help them improve their farming. But as far as us being the experts, we're not. In fact, one of the things that we love to say is that the people we work with are our partners, not our projects. Well, let me back up just a bit. I want to hear about how you got where you are today. Could you talk a bit about your story, maybe in particular, some of the influences that led you actually to plan with purpose as your perfect job. Sure. Well, that presumes that it is my perfect job, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I should clarify, you've been with plan with purpose over 30 years, right? It will be 30 years in January. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope you like the job. <laughs> I hope it's been fun for you. It, it has <laughs> its days and it has changed so much over the years, but yeah, I started as a volunteer. I had been an officer in the Navy and was going to grad school at night and needed a foreign language to finish my master's degree. So the day after I got out of the Navy, I went to Guatemala to do an immersion program in Spanish. And while I was there, there's no other way to say it. God opened my eyes to issues of poverty and extreme injustice and the fact that long-term solutions were necessary, as well as people living their faith in a way I'd never experienced growing up in Southern California. So I had a semester to go. I came back and I started volunteering at the only international organization I knew of that was Plant With Purpose and was hired about a year and a half later. Another huge influence, by the way, was one of the first speakers that I heard on behalf of Plant With Purpose was Tony Campolo. And Tony's had a huge influence on my worldview. What I didn't know then was how little we knew as an organization. There was an administrative assistant and me for most of the first two years or three years that I worked there. And that's a whole other story. Kind of, kind of growing in our understanding of impact and the measurement of impact and of professionalism and of partnership, community development, ecosystems, and so forth. That's what has made 30 years tolerable, is that it's been a continuous learning and refining process. Well, I'm curious in terms of growth, has the sort of growing awareness of climate change and climate issues, has it actually changed the way people are looking at your organization? In other words, are they perhaps more interested in your work because you do consider ecology as part of the sort of critical formula for development? Yeah, that is a really interesting question because it has changed a lot over the years. I think that 
for a lot of our existence, we were too Christian for the environmentalists and too environmental for the Christians. I think that, yeah, that has changed. There has been a growing recognition of environmental issues as being critical. Just in the last few years, with growing interest in nature-based solutions to climate change, tree planting, and so forth, there has been a lot of interest in our work from partners like One Tree Planted, like World Resources Institute, others, because we have this almost 40-year track record of not just planting trees, but of nurturing trees and seeing them grow to maturity and doing so in a way that involves and incorporates the local communities, which is relatively rare. There's a lot of interest in tree planting right now, and very little of it incorporates the local community. And when it does, I mean, their organizations are fairly new to that. You know, I want to talk a bit more about that tension that you pointed out. You had said that as an organization, you were too Christian for environmentalists and then too environmental for churches, for Christ followers. Tell me about that tension. What is going on there? And do you see it changing in any way right now? Um, I think so. I mean, some of it mirrors my own growth and evolution. I came to Plant With Purpose because I was interested in poverty alleviation. And I didn't really get the environmental aspect of what we were doing. And it wasn't until, you know, I went to Haiti and I went to the Dominican Republic and I saw people trying to make a living from their land and really struggling with the condition of their land. And I, this is an evolution, like I say, over 30 years, but I went from, you know, not really getting the interest in the environment to getting it, but from a primarily utilitarian perspective, I once many years ago had somebody sit down with me and say, I hope you're not about to tell me that God cares as much about trees as people. And my response was, no, what I will tell you is the people need the trees. And that's absolutely true. But again, it's very utilitarian. Since then, I've learned that God cares about creation for its own sake. And there's so much we can learn about God from creation. And that has been exciting. It's been exciting of, you know, understanding both the gospel and my own calling in a much broader and more holistic way. So that's, you know, how things have evolved for me on as a Christian. I think the other thing that we've found is that most, if not most, an awful lot of environmental agencies and environmental funders are thrilled to have Christians involved. And so that there's often been an open door and an opportunity that wouldn't exist if we were secular. Well, it makes me wonder, obviously, you're in contact with a lot of churches all the time. Have you found that part of your mission has maybe become education for people to understand why is it important that we pay attention to ecological context and sort of moving them perhaps along the spectrum of acceptance of things like climate change and the need for creation care? Oh, absolutely. That's been a big part of of what we do and who we are for at least, well, actually, I go back to some of our oldest mission statements, and it's been a part of 
how we've conceived our mission since the very beginning is calling churches and the church to action on environmental issues. But to me, it's one of the most fun things I get to do is is to speak about this. Yeah. Well, let me ask you to help us understand Apply With Purpose, perhaps by giving us a story or two that maybe exemplifies some of the work that you do. Sure. Well, I, let me talk a little bit about the mechanics of what the work actually looks like. We are addressing the three areas, economic empowerment, environmental restoration, and spiritual renewal. And it's easy to kind of go through them in that order. We start usually with establishing something called a savings group or a village savings and loan association, which is a group of about 25 to 30 people who each bring a small amount of money every week and save it in a metal box. It's actually a pretty common or it's growing in its prevalence community development technique. And one story on that is we began doing it because our Tanzanian director shared it with us way back in early 2000s, 2004 or so. And she told me, she says, Scott, it's so beautiful. These women come and they bring 25 cents a week. And I, I looked at her and I said, 25 cents a week? How is that ever going to amount to anything? But it's absolutely amazing. Now, the part I left out was we take them through a 12-week training program. In that time, they learn to make loans to their own members. They make those loans at interest. That interest, instead of going to pay our overhead or our loan officer, accrues to their own savings accounts. And the money grows in ways I couldn't have imagined. We currently have about 3,000 of those groups worldwide with a combined net worth of $12 million approximately. If you think about that, 25 cents a week, you know, sometimes it's a dollar and it grows with time and it grows as people believe in the system. But that which I didn't believe would amount to much or anything, $12 million that people are continually investing in their own communities. One of the many reasons there are partners, not our projects. That's the base and then within that group, we then have a farmer field school, which teaches regenerative agriculture, agroforestry, watershed restoration, and so forth. And what makes a farmer field school unique is it's a very hands-on, very experiential learning technique in which the members of the group propose their own experiments and run their own experiments side by side. And so one of the things we measure is, are people really adopting what we're teaching? I mean, there's a lot of ways to teach agriculture. We could be giving lectures, but this has a really high adoption rate. And then the two of those, the agricultural and environmental work combined with the savings group, create a synergy that isn't there with either one of those interventions by themselves. And then the third part, the week partner with local churches. It's one of the ways we're able to walk into a community and start a savings group is that we often are provided entree by the pastor and introduced by the pastors. So we collaborate with the local churches and help them to reach out at their own communities. But we also, within the savings groups, we serve everybody regardless of faith, and there's no obligation to participate in 
Bible study or anything like that. But we do have curriculum around care of creation and around the idea that work is a gift from God and that everybody's been given talents to invest on behalf of God's kingdom and reconciliation. So those are three kind of broad themes that we bring in and share within those groups. And I have heard from our local directors that in many ways, that's the secret sauce. You know, people are planting trees out of a sense of calling. I think that's one thing to be clear about. We don't pay people to plant trees. The first trees they're planting are agroforestry trees, fruit trees, et cetera, for their own benefit on their own farms. But where this carries on into the care and restoration of their watersheds comes from both a sense of calling and a realization that they now have margin to take care of the environment they depend on. Yeah, I'm curious about something that you said, a number of things, actually. I'm wondering, first of all, you had mentioned in the example of the savings groups, you talked about women. Is it mostly women who are doing the saving in the savings group? Mostly, but not exclusively. I think if you look at savings groups as they're done throughout the world, a lot of times they are exclusively women. We tend to cater to farmers, which depending on the country, are predominantly women. I I think our groups tend to be about 60 to 70% women, but it varies from country to country. You know, certainly a number of the countries we work in, in East Africa, the majority of the farm labor is female. So another question I had had to do with the farmer training that you do. How do you balance what people already know and maybe what you don't know as an organization and balance that with what you're bringing into the situation in terms of curriculum or ideas. I mean, how do you, I guess, help people to be empowered and to trust in what they know and yet also deliver them things that they probably don't know and would make their lives a lot easier? Fabulous question. First of all, the curriculum itself was designed and written by our local agronomists from every country. So it is the combined knowledge of, at the time, I think it was seven countries that were involved in writing the curriculum. So the agronomists from each country brought and pooled their lessons. And those lessons are a combination of what they've learned in the local communities and what they've brought from their own schooling. But a lot of the stuff that we're teaching, whether it's agroforestry or regenerative agriculture, all has its roots in indigenous knowledge. We're not talking, you know, green revolution, high input farming here. The other aspect of that question is the farmer field school system allows people to propose their own experiments. And really through that, gain confidence in what they were doing or, you know, what they bring to the table. And so we graduate out of watersheds and out of groups after five or six years. But by that time, they've been through our curriculum, but they're so used to proposing experiments and continuing to try things out that they continue to improve and develop their own agriculture based on their own self-confidence and own knowledge long after we're gone. Yeah, that feels really important to me in terms of 
encouraging them to actually take risks and encouraging them to go beyond the curriculum even. Yeah. That is not always the standard approach of development organizations, which, you know, for the sake of efficiency and adequate use of resources, they're maybe a bit more prescriptive just in terms of what people should do, quote unquote. I do wonder about this idea of margin that you spoke of. A lot of people will say that it is hard for folks in the developing world, especially in very poor contexts, to have a concern for the environment because, you know, their main concern is staying alive and providing safe for their family. And so care for the environment is a luxury that they can't really ever get to. You're, I think, saying something different, though. You're saying that it is in the provision that they're also finding the heart to take care of the earth. Is that a good read? That is. Well, I think both of those things are true. You know, going back to kind of misperceptions, people used to ask me, so are you just going to Haiti and teaching people not to cut their trees? And the answer is no, they already know. And I would hear from farmers who, you know, maybe never finished elementary school how the water cycle works and how a watershed functions. And I had that expressed to me with an eloquence that I've never heard in an American ecology class or biology class, you know, deep understanding, but it was always finished with, but how am I supposed to feed my kids? If I don't sell charcoal, how am I supposed to feed my kids? If I don't cut down the trees, how am I supposed to feed my kids? And so yeah, it's got to start with that economic empowerment. And that's why those two are coupled so closely together in our theory of change, that people who are on the edge of survival aren't going to convert their farm to trees that might bear fruit in 10 years or five years or whatever, unless they have some margin. And so that's, again, when I share economic empowerment first, it's that margin that allows them to start thinking longer term and a longer term investment in the future. But almost everybody longs for that. Boy, I can't tell you how many people have told me, I remember, you know, old men in Haiti saying, I remember when I was a child and this area was green and moist and everything was different. And there's a longing for that. So, the exciting so, thing is it's possible. It's possible yeah. to go back to that. Right. Well, I'm intrigued with this idea that there's always this pursuit of new knowledge in all of the sites that you work in. I would guess that people in one country who develop some sort of new innovation or particularly effective strategy for growing things well... I suspect that those strategies, those ideas actually get passed around to other folks in the Plant With Purpose network. Is that right? Yes. I, that's one of the exciting things about the network is that there's a lot of multilateral connections. We're not just the center of the wheel with spokes. There's a genuine multilateral international partnership and affection and sharing between the countries. Not strictly agricultural, but the most obvious example of that, I already shared, it was in the early 2000s that it was our director in Tanzania who was first started experimenting with savings groups and that every other country, every other partner has learned from Tanzania and now does those savings groups. 
I interviewed someone this week, and their episode will show up later in the new year, but one of the things this guy from Uganda was contending is that even though he doesn't perceive that the West is that open to it, he believes that Ugandan farmers have a lot to teach American farmers. <laughs> and he says, if you would only listen to us, right? If you listened to us earlier, we could have stopped the disaster that is happening in terms of topsoil destruction and reliance on industrial farming. He says he doesn't want Uganda ever to go that direction, even though there are pressures to do so. And so he lobbies actually for a Ugandan way. But do you think that's true, that in the West that we could stand to learn things from the developing world? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's all sorts of examples of where that's beginning to happen. You know, information and knowledge finds its way here. It's not maybe a direct Uganda to Kansas connection, but whether it's, you know, agroforestry or integrated pest management, there's a lot of Western researchers working on that, but the ideas are coming from elsewhere. Sure. In season three of the podcast, we've been highlighting conversations that are really at the intersection of social justice and environmental justice. I am curious, what does that intersection look like in the work of Plant with Purpose? Well, you know, as I mentioned, we got into environmental justice. We got into environmental work first because we were looking at how to alleviate poverty, how to work with the marginalized subsistence farmers and smallholder farmers around the world and saw that the two were intimately connected. And I think that that may be pretty universal, that we all depend on the environment, you know, and the more wealthy we are, the more layers of insulation we can put. But in the end, we are as dependent on the environment as anybody else. And that's a lesson that I've learned from being, you know, in other countries and hearing directly from them and starting to think about how that applies to us. Speaking of global interconnectivity, one of the environmental justice issues I think that's getting attention these days is what's being discussed at the COP27 conference, especially in terms of compensation for those countries who contribute very little to the climate crisis problem, but yet pay a higher price just in terms of the impact of storms and drought, et cetera, on them. I'm wondering what is your take on that? What are you thinking about that conversation about either compensation for damage or investment to help poorer countries anticipate the effects of climate change to come. One of the things that we see firsthand is how climate change is already impacting those we serve. You know, most of them are dependent on rain-fed agriculture. So when the rains become irregular, you know, that can be essentially a death sentence they are more vulnerable to natural disaster. And, you know, around the world this year, we have dealt with our partners, participating farmers who've suffered from forest fire, from landslide, from flooding, from drought. All those climate effects, none of them are insured. They have very little footprint. They're not the ones who've contributed to what they're now essentially forced to reap 
on our behalf. So absolutely, we should be, I think, working to mitigate the effects that they feel, help them to adapt and support those efforts. I have a question about the plant with purpose approach. I know that your work, it pursues land restoration in a way that also helps people in terms of food production. I'm wanting to understand more about that balance. For example, when the organization encourages food producing trees to be planted in a reforestation project, are they necessarily thinking about maybe the trees that would actually belong there in the native ecosystem, just in terms of you know, having a more of a balanced ecology, like who thinks about those sorts of things or is it actually an issue? It's an issue and it's something we're thinking about all the time. I think there's a difference between what somebody plants on their own farm. You know, oftentimes their own farms are a few acres and maybe have been devoted to maize or cassava or something like that. So even fruit trees and timber trees, et cetera, start to bring some biodiversity back to that. But then there's the common lands, the land upstream, the previously forested land, where we're definitely thinking more about native ecosystems and native trees and so forth. It's a unique balance. I think in my perfect world, there's a place where the two intersect. And I don't think we're there. In fact, I know we're not there. But we can definitely move the farm closer as the farm becomes more biodiverse. It starts to mimic some of the natural ecosystem services. And we can move that closer to the natural ecosystem at the same time that we're restoring the natural ecosystem and helping it to be more productive. <laughs> yeah, I'm asking this question because as a community development professor, I think a lot about the tendency of community development in the world as a whole to really hyper-focus on the needs of people. And I think sometimes that comes at the expense of creation around people. And in our organization, in Circlewood, the sponsor of our podcast, we've been learning lots about considering the world around us, the non-human world, as part of our community. So we're broadening that definition of community. And because I teach community development, it's something I'm really intrigued by. Like, how do I teach this stuff in a way that helps people to expand their understanding of what community is to include the community of creation? Seems to me that Plant with Purpose is on that frontier. Would you say that's true? Yeah. Well, we're definitely on the path there. We try to be local community-led, and I think that they also are going to prioritize their own needs first. And again, that's why I say once there's some margin, once people can start to think about more than their immediate survival, we can start to talk about the ecosystem and biodiversity and so forth. We actually do measure changes in biodiversity and we actually are making a really concerted effort to propagate and plant native trees. I think we've got room to move further that way. I also think what we've really tried to focus on is where are the win-wins? Where can we benefit both the local community and 
the ecosystem without seeing the two as necessarily in opposition to each other. I wonder if you see what I seem to be seeing, and that is more and more community development organizations and even relief-oriented organizations are actually beginning to think about the environment, perhaps in terms of mitigating climate change effects, but even more generally to think about a healthy environment that creates healthy human community and vice versa. I'm hoping that's not just wishful thinking on my part, but I'm wondering what have you seen? It's not just wishful thinking. I think that there are more and more organizations that are addressing that because they have to. Because if you spend any time working with the marginalized, if you spend any time working in relief, I mean, more and more relief efforts are for environmental catastrophes. So absolutely, that's the case. I mean, I've noticed it for a long time. I used to say, you know, you look at some of the big environmental agencies and they're all doing, maybe just at a small level, they're all doing community development because they have to, because they have to. You can't, you know, address the habitat issues of the mountain gorillas without thinking about the people who share that habitat. So, because they have to, they're addressing that. And the flip side is a lot of the really big community development agencies are addressing issues of deforestation and issues of environmental degradation because they have to. Actually, some of the coolest work around reforestation has come from World Vision. World Vision Australia has a guy by the name of Tony Renato. He'd be a great guest on your podcast who has pioneered a technique called farmer-managed natural regeneration, which restores the forest. They found that by pruning and nurturing what's already in the ground in areas that have been badly deforested, that in just a few years, the forest reemerges. It's less expensive than tree planting, more native, more natural. And it's a technique that we use, but yeah, Tony Renato is worth looking up. So I try to encourage my students in the graduate program I teach for to not accept the status quo, even from the big players like World Vision, right? They can always question what is in order to find out what can be done better. And, you know, I've had such amazing questions asked by the students. One student actually looked at disaster relief, particularly in Haiti, and noticed that while the organizations that came in to offer relief did it quickly and efficiently and got food and water to people, for example, in a really effective way. When they left, they left an enormous problem, which was mountains of plastic waste. Because, you know, food that is delivered into contexts like that tends to be stored in plastic. And so this person was saying that it can't end once you meet the people's needs. You've got to look at the whole cycle of needs provision. And so she critiqued a couple of the organization's practices and made a cogent argument to them to maybe consider changing. But it's funny how, you know, if you really stop and look, there are issues that we might not have seen because, you know what, the organizations are helping people. What could be better than that? And we sort of don't think about the other implications of what that help could mean in a given context. Absolutely. Yeah. So when I was in graduate school, I was studying 
international politics. And somewhere along the line, I came to the conclusion that policy is really hard. And I want to do something that has immediate positive impact. And so my thought was feeding hungry people. What could be better than that? What could be simpler than that? And what I have learned is that it is so much more complicated and the potential for unintended consequences and bad outcomes is really high, even there, even in grassroots and direct action. And it's one of the reasons why this has been such a learning process. If you were to give me advice about preparing my graduate students for this world of relief and development, what should I be teaching them? How do I prepare them better for this particular emerging dynamic in terms of attention to the environment? I think the biggest thing that I've learned is there are other people out there tackling the same problems. And it's very easy in nonprofit work and in community development work to become siloed. And I think one of our issues is that we've got a lot of well-meaning people all trying to reinvent the same wheel. So approaching it with humility, learning from those we want to serve, and learning from others who've been at this longer than we have. Some of what's wrong in aid and in community development is because of the way it's funded and funding cycles. But there's a lot of people, even in organizations that are driven by funding cycles, who are working on better ways of doing things. And I think that for us, one of the most important things was learning the humility to work with others, learn from others, and not think that the wheel that we reinvented is the best wheel. Well, there's something freeing in that model too, isn't there? In the sense that as an organization, when you're partnering with others, you're freer to be who you are as an organization. You're freer to live out of your strengths and then trust yourself really to the organizations who are doing the things that you don't do so well and vice versa. So you have been at the work of Plant With Purpose over 30 years now. I'm wondering when you look back on all the ways that the organization has impacted people, what are your thoughts? What are your feelings? You know, I think the individual stories are tremendous, but data is a really important thing for us and measuring impact. And to me, those two things together give me a lot of confidence. You can find positive stories. No matter how bad your work is, you can find somebody, you know, even if he's the guy you're paying, you can find somebody who says, yeah, this is great. And so I love the stories, but I also take those with a grain of salt until I can combine them to the impact measurements and say, yeah, these stories are actually representative. I know that these stories of transformation of life change and of hope are repeated tens of thousands of times, I think that that gives me a tremendous amount of satisfaction. And when you talk about storytelling, storytelling to whom? Like, what's going to make these stories change things? Who gets to hear them? Well, in the beginning, they're stories that 
we hear that are passed on to our team, you know, what they want us to know, and then stories that we share with the public. I think there's so much that I want to come through in the stories, and probably one of the biggest things is the agency, creativity, and dynamism of the people we serve. It's so easy to write off, you know, poor peasants, and their voices are silenced as a result of that. So, I mean, obviously, the stories are in part because we want to get people excited about what we're doing. We want to raise funds. But I think they're also stories to let people share their own power. Yeah, I'm heartened that you said that because the next meeting I have is a curriculum design meeting with a guy with whom I'm writing a course on the power of story that we're going to introduce in the next summer here. So we were coming to the same conclusion, like more and more and more story is important to compel folks to make people aware of things they weren't aware of. Yeah. So even I think to pass on the lessons to be learned, right? I mean, we talk about folks in the West learning from developing world contexts. I mean, story is a great vehicle for that. Well, and I think that so much of our attitude, not to get political here or anything, but whether it's our attitude towards people in our own community, homeless, or whether it's our attitude towards immigrants, are based on the story that we believe. And maybe we've heard one story and we apply that story to everybody that we encounter. I mean, I think about that when I think about our reaction to immigrants is when you hear about immigrants, when you hear about you know people coming to the United States, what's the story that's in your brain? And of course, we don't combine that with data. And I think combining data is really important because we don't also probably at some level, both stories are true. But what's the representative story? Is it the exception? Is the story we believe the exception or is it the rule? Anyway, I know I think that one of the challenges we have, one of the reasons that we're so polarized right now is because we believe different stories about others. Yeah. I'm wondering about this data part of the story. You use quantitative data. I'm wondering if you also use qualitative data. We do. It's easier to quantify quantitative data, but, you know, spiritual impact is very hard to quantify. And so we use things like, you know, the most important change stories of the most significant change. I think that's the technique. We work with focus groups to hear what they feel like the most significant stories are, especially in our spiritual impact. It's much easier to quantitatively measure changes in poverty and environmental change is becoming easier to quantify using remote sensing and other tools like that. I'm wondering if if you feel hopeful. I'm wondering if you feel hopeful about your work. And maybe I'll ask the question a different way. What is it that keeps you going at this work? Wow. Well, first of all, I do feel hopeful. It's really easy to look at the big picture and despair. But if I look at individual sub-watersheds where we're working and I see the transformation that's taking place there, I see lives changing for the better. 
that gives me a lot of hope. And I think that we're called to do what we can do, not what we can't do. I mean, I actually have a sermon that I frequently preach that one of our problems is that we tend to put ourselves in the role of the Savior. And if we do, we're going to be overwhelmed. If we do, we will despair. I'm not called to be the Savior. My role is similar to that of the little boy in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, right? What I have to offer is ridiculously small in comparison with the problem. I mean, you know, even with our impact of 30 years, it sounds great. We say 50 million trees. That's great. And until you look at the overall scope of the problem. So what we have to offer is ridiculously small, but it doesn't matter because in faith, we're going to offer that and realize that we're not the savior. And in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, of course, the little boy offers his five loaves and two fish. And that was used by Christ to feed everybody there. And so in faith, I think the little that we have to offer, we're trusting God to utilize that to do something far greater. Yeah, so I have hope as long as I focus on where I can make a difference. I think that, you know, we focus on the problem and it's global totality. That's a recipe for despair. We've been in conversation with Scott Sabin, Executive Director of Plant With Purpose. As we've mentioned often in the podcast, the poor and developing nations often suffer the greatest losses due to climate change, even though these countries contribute very little to the growing climate crisis. If you're looking to donate money to initiatives that directly address this injustice, we at EarthKeeper strongly endorse the work of Plant With Purpose. For information about how to donate and to learn more about the work of this organization, go to the show notes for this episode on the podcast webpage. You'll also find links to past podcast episodes that have featured Plant With Purpose, so be sure to check those out as well. I'm Forrest Inslee, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amidon. Our producer is Dave Wolfers. Forrest Reed is the creator of our original music, and Timothy Connor is our podcast editor. Our research assistant is Alex Megerly, and Jessalyn Gentry is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast.